Well, take your Bible and turn with me to Revelation 21, and tonight we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8, Revelation 21. Last time we talked about hell, tonight we get to talk about heaven, much more uh, a joyful topic. But well, let's look at uh, Revelation 21. You follow along in your Bible, let's read it together. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars... Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I thought we were done with hell. I guess we're not completely done. But let's pray together. Father, we thank you tonight for another opportunity to be together and to uh, look at your word and to uh, be encouraged. And Lord, we just pray that you would bless as we go through this passage again tonight. Uh, Lord, we we thank you for Sam and... uh, Amanda, we thank you for their willingness to go to Malawi and serve you there. And uh, Lord, uh, we thank you for the work they were able to accomplish there. And we we pray for that uh, ministry. We pray for the training of pastors that there would be uh, solid churches all across Africa and uh, throughout the world. We uh, are thankful for these uh, training centers that are equipping pastors to. Um, exposit your word and lord we just pray that you would bless these efforts lord we also uh, uh pray for robert and terry as they travel and sam and amanda as they travel to california that you would just be with them protect them keep them safe and lord we uh pray tonight as we fellowship together as we uh worship together that you would bless in jesus name we pray amen A fiery evangelist looked out over a crowd and asked with great emotion, Are you ready to go to heaven? Not getting the desired response, he singled out a young lady on the front row and said, Are you ready to go to heaven? She responded nervously finally, Well, quite frankly, I'm not quite ready to leave Colorado. You know, every once in a while, you may hear someone say of a certain Christian, he is so heavenly-minded, 
He is no earthly good. But I really don't think that's the problem today. I think the problem is the reverse. Many times we are so earthly minded, we are no heavenly good. A little boy that was spending the night away from his parents for the first time was asked, Are you homesick? To which he replied, No, I'm here sick. He was sick of being where he was, which was away from home. Listen, this world is not our permanent home. We're just passing through this place. And certainly we are to live responsibly in this world, but we should never get so attached to the things of this world that we neglect the things that will be forever. The late Dr. Harry Rimmer once wrote a letter to the late Dr. Charles E. Fuller. He didn't write it after he was deceased, but before he was deceased, here's what it said. Next Sunday, I know you are going to be preaching about heaven. I am very interested in that place because I've held a clear title to a bit of property there for about 50 years. I did not buy it. It was given to me without price. But the donor purchased it for me at a tremendous sacrifice. I'm not holding it for speculation. It is not a vacant lot. For more than half a century, I have been sending materials up to the greatest architect of the universe who has been building a home for me that will never need remodeling or repairing because it will suit me perfectly. It will never grow old. Termites can never undermine its foundation for it rests on the rock of ages fire cannot destroy it floods cannot wash it away no locks and bolts will ever need to be placed upon its doors oh i know there is a deep valley i must pass through before i reach that land i cannot get there without passing through that valley but i am not afraid because the best friend anyone could ever have went through this same valley long, long ago and drove away all its gloom. I hope to hear your sermon on heaven next Sunday, but I have no assurance that I will be able to do so. My ticket to heaven has no date marker for the journey, no return coupon, and no permit for baggage. I am ready to go. I'll meet you there someday, signed Harry Rimmer. And as you might have guessed, before Charles Fuller could preach that sermon on heaven, Harry Rimmer had already passed into that glorious place. That eternal home for the saints is revealed to us in Revelation 21. What will heaven be like? Well, we don't know everything about it. But there are some wonderful truths revealed about it in God's Word. And some of that important revelation is found right here in our text tonight. Throughout the history of the church, God's people have rightly been preoccupied with the glories of heaven. The true saints of God have longed for the eternal state primarily because they have understood that this world is not our permanent home. We are strangers and exiles 
on the earth, and we desire a better country that is a heavenly one, according to Hebrews 11. Of course, in Philippians, Paul wrote, Our citizenship is in heaven. And to the Colossians, he wrote, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. It is very important for Christians to have a heavenly perspective, an eternal orientation. And that's why the Bible refers to heaven more than 500 times. It refers to it even 50 times in just this one book, the book of Revelation. So this is an important chapter, and this is an important issue. And we're going to be focused on this really for the rest of the book. We read it a few minutes ago, but let's go back and dissect Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Now, we have covered a lot of ground so far in our study of this book. We have seen the end of the church age. We've seen the rapture of the church. We've seen seven years of tribulation on the earth, the reign of the Antichrist, and the battle of Armageddon. We've seen the second coming of Christ, followed by the 1,000-year millennial kingdom. And at the very end of that, Satan will be released to cause one final rebellion and will be cast into the lake of fire along with the beast and the false prophet. And last week we saw the passing away of the old world. We saw the great white throne judgment. But now tonight we come to a brand new world, a new heaven, a new earth and a new Jerusalem. This now ends the millennium and carries us into what is referred to as the eternal state. And we're going to see that the first eight verses of this chapter kind of serve as an outline for the rest of the book. But before we move into our text, once again, we have the issue of whether this should be taken literally or not. And if you read some of the commentaries, you see that everywhere along the way, uh, there are those who try to make a case for a non-literal interpretation. Uh, Steve Gregg says, The new heavens and new earth have been interpreted in essentially three ways. First, literally of a future material universe after the coming of Christ. And that's what most futurists believe. Secondly, It's been interpreted symbolically of heaven, the abode of the glorified saints. It's kind of a general uh, idea. Or thirdly, it has been interpreted spiritually to refer to the new covenant community or the church that has replaced the old covenant community, which is Israel. Now, among dispensationalists, there's almost universal agreement that this comes chronologically after the millennium. And most dispensationalists also take this literally and believe that the old heaven and earth will be completely destroyed and will be replaced by a totally new heaven and earth. 
On the other hand, Greg explains that the spiritualist view of the new creation is simply applying the images which appear to be talking about heaven, the earth, a city, a river, trees, etc., to the spiritual new creation, the church. He says, some expositors who understand the vision in this way consider the first heaven and the first earth which have passed away to be the pre-conversion state of the believer and others see the defunct old covenant system of Judaism as the older creation now being replaced by the new order under Christ, which would be, of course, the church. And it's just amazing to me how uh, people get things all turned around. I, of course, reject those ideas and embrace that this will be a literal new heaven and new earth, which will come down out of heaven and replace the old one that has now, at this point, been completely destroyed. So with all that in mind, let's jump into this passage of Scripture. And we will actually have seven points in these first six verses. But we're not going to get that far tonight. We're not going to see all of that. But we begin with, first of all, the coming of the new world. Look with me at verse 1 again. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, the phrase, new heaven and new earth, actually comes from two passages in the book of Isaiah. Turn with me for a moment to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, and let's look at verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Now, turn over to Isaiah 66 and look at verse 22. Isaiah 66, 22. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. Revelation 21 is a fulfillment of these two prophecies. Uh, Turn back, and you're, you're in Isaiah, turn back to Isaiah 51 for just a moment. Isaiah 51, and look at verse 16. Isaiah 51, 16. And I have put my words in your mouth and have covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens, to found the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. Now, what you need to note about that verse is that God is talking about establish, establishing heavens and laying the foundation of the earth. But he's saying this at a time when the first earth and heaven are already in existence. So this must be referring to a new heaven and a new earth. The way the King James words it, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth, seems to imply that this is still future, while verse 13, uh, 
Isaiah used the past tense. He said, you have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. So he's saying, that's already been done. The current earth has already been established. The foundations have already been laid. But then he talks about the future in uh, the verse 16 that we looked at earlier. Verse 13 is clearly past tense. But verse 16 seems to be referring to something that God still intends to do. And it seems to suggest something that God intended to do sometime after Isaiah's day. The Apostle Peter spoke of this same promise. He said, 2 Peter 3.13, According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. But now back to Revelation 21.1. This is really very straightforward if you let the text say what it says. Look at it again. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth pass away. Is that not fairly clear? Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, It sure looks like it's saying that the old earth and heaven are going to be done away with completely and a brand new earth and heaven are going to take its place. Is that how you read that? I just really don't understand all these other approaches. Why would we not want to take this at face value? And when it says that there is not going to be any more sea, there are those who say, well, you know, it doesn't really mean there aren't going to be any more seeds. Why not? Why not? You know, I just take that at face value and let the text say what it says, and I believe there's going to be a brand new earth, and that it's going to be very different from this present earth, which is now covered by three-quarters oceans, water, seas. There are going to be a lot of things different about that world, and this is just one of those differences. Now, we've looked at the passing away of the old earth and heavens. Uh, The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, that heaven and earth will pass away. It is the clear teaching of Scripture that this world in which we now live will one day go up in smoke. Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3, 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Verse 7 says, But the present heavens and earth, by His word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Now, interestingly, there are some Greek scholars who say that the phrase reserved for fire really should read stored with fire. And it's interesting that the earth that we live upon is filled with fire. In the heart of this earth is a seething, molten core of fire. It is like a giant bomb, and one of these days, God is just going to light the fuse. But now, whether that is the correct meaning or not, the truth of the matter is, the world that we 
now live in will one day be destroyed. That's why, folks, we always need to remember that everything in this world is temporary. And we should not get attached to any of it. Because someday it's all going to go away. And God is going to replace all of it with something brand new. The word for new in verse 1 does not really emphasize chronology as much as it emphasizes quality. The new world that God will create is one that is going to be completely untainted by sin. MacArthur writes, God originally created the earth to be suitable as mankind's permanent home. The entrance of sin, however, corrupted the earth and the universe, and God will destroy them. But what lies ahead for the earth is not a nuclear or an ecological holocaust, but a divine judgment. This is going to be an act of God as He destroys, as He uncreates the current earth and heaven. Now, before we move on, let me make just one more comment on the phrase, there is no longer any sea. Most dispensationalists agree that this means there will not be oceans like the present earth. Ray Stedman says that even though there will not be any oceans, there may be large bodies of fresh water all over the earth. But MacArthur takes a little different viewpoint. He says the sea is emblematic of the present water-based environment. All life on earth is dependent on water for its survival. And the earth is the only known place in the universe where there is sufficient water to sustain life. And so MacArthur emphasizes that we currently live in a water-based system. When they sent the Mars Explorer up there, what were they hoping to find? They were hoping to find some ice crystals. They were looking for some kind of evidence of water, because it takes water to sustain life. But, MacArthur says, believers' glorified bodies will not require water, unlike present human bodies whose blood is 90% water and whose flesh is 65% water. Thus, the new heaven and the new earth will be based on a completely different life principle than the present universe. There will be a river in heaven, not of water, but of the water of life. And that's seen in verse 1 and in verse 17. Well, let's move on. I've got to have water. Secondly, we also see the capital of the new world. Look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, some scholars have stumbled over what Steve Gregg calls a mixing of metaphors here. In this verse, we see a city that is referred to as a bride. But that really shouldn't surprise us because we've already seen that in this book. 
We saw Babylon referred to as a woman. Uh, Clearly, chapter 17, verse 18 says, The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So if the capital of the Antichrist can be described as a woman, then why can't the new Jerusalem be described as a bride? In fact, we even see this fairly frequently in the Old Testament in regard to Jerusalem. In Isaiah 37:22, Jerusalem is referred to as the virgin daughter of Zion. MacArthur explains that the city is pictured as a bride because it contains the bride and takes on her characteristics. And as we've seen, a Jewish wedding really had four phases. The betrothal, the presentation, the ceremony itself, and finally the consummation. And this introduction of the eternal state corresponds with that final phase of marriage, which is the consummation. The betrothal took place in eternity past. The presentation will take place at the rapture of the church. The ceremony began at the marriage supper of the Lamb and continues through the millennium. And the consummation takes place here with the coming of the new Jerusalem and the beginning of the eternal state. MacArthur also goes on to explain that by this point in Revelation, the bride concept now expands to include not only the church as it has since Acts chapter 2, but also all the rest of the redeemed from all the ages who live forever now in that eternal city. So now the bride is not just the church, not just what we often call refer to as the bride of Christ, but now it expands to include all the saints of all the ages. Now, some have questioned whether this should be taken as a literal city here. There's no reason to take it any other way. This will actually be the third city that is referred to as Jerusalem. There is the historic city of Jerusalem, the city of David, that currently exists in Palestine. There will be a refurbished city of Jerusalem from which Christ will reign during the days of the millennial kingdom. And then there will be this final eternal Jerusalem in the heavenly state. Notice it's called a holy city. One of the reasons it is called holy is because those who dwell in it are going to be holy. They're going to be redeemed. There won't be any sin. And remember what we read back in chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. All the saints, all those who take part in the first resurrection will be completely holy. And notice also that this city will come down out of heaven from God. Hebrews 11.10 talks about a city whose architect and builder is God. In Hebrews 12.22 and 23 we read, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, 
the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Concerning that verse, MacArthur comments, All of heaven is currently contained in the New Jerusalem. It is separated from from the present universe, which is tainted by sin. Believers who die go to the heavenly Jerusalem, where Jesus has gone before them to prepare a place for them, John 14, 1 through 3. But when God creates the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem will descend into the midst of that holy new universe and serve as the dwelling place for the redeemed for all eternity. This is going to be our eternal home. Do you remember the promise that was made to the church at Philadelphia? In chapter 3, verse 12, it says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven and from my God, and my new name. That's the promise that's given to those who are believers in Christ. But now let's go back for a moment to that bride analogy. John says the new Jerusalem will be made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Folks, listen, it takes a lot of preparation to get a bride ready for her wedding day. It takes a lot of money to get everything ready for that day. I know that as a father of three daughters who are now all married. But what does all this tell us? It tells us that God is going to spare no expense in the preparation of this glorious city. He's not going to cut any corners. And you and I cannot even begin to imagine the beauty of that place. We all know the popular song, I Can Only Imagine. Folks, we can't imagine how glorious that place is going to be. The Bible says, eye has not seen and ear has not heard and it has not entered into the heart of man concerning all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Folks, listen. The God who paints every sunset, the God who sculptured the rose, the God who has formed the Grand Canyon, the God who hung the rainbow in the sky is going to prepare a city as if it were a bride being prepared for her husband. Do you know what a bride does on her wedding day? She does everything within her power to make herself beautiful for her soon-to-be husband. In fact, the Greek word for adorned in that verse is the word cosmeo. It's where we get our word cosmetics. And the idea is that everything possible is going to be done to make this city the most beautiful place that has ever existed. I mean, think about it. Can you imagine what it will be like when Almighty God does everything within His power to adorn that great city? It is beyond the capacity of our human minds to comprehend. 
at her mother's graveside, a little girl once asked Dr. R.G. Lee what heaven would be like. Dr. Lee replied, it will be the most beautiful place that the wisdom of God can conceive and the power of God can create. That's what heaven will be like. Think about the words of the author of Hebrews in Hebrews eleven thirteen to 16 speaking of the, of the Old Testament saints. All these died in faith without receiving the promise, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own, and indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Well, one last thing that we'll touch on tonight And that's the centerpiece of the new world. We'll finish with this one. Look again at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And He shall dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be among them. Folks, it won't be the streets of gold that we will be thinking about in heaven. It won't be that mansion He has prepared for us. The constant focus of our attention will be on the One who has redeemed us. We will be eternally consumed with the awesome reality of being in the very presence of Almighty God. And the most important thing about this city is that God will dwell there. And we will be with Him and we will see Him face to face. That is what will make heaven, heaven. The supreme joy and glory of heaven is the person of God Himself. The loud voice coming from before the throne indicates that this is the most important announcement related to the new Jerusalem. The use of the word behold adds to the sense of importance. It's as if John is saying, can you believe this? The tabernacle of God is now among men, and He shall dwell among them. And they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be among them. What an incredible thing. No more idea of God being off in some distant realm. There will be absolutely no doubt that God is dwelling with redeemed men. And this will be the fulfillment of the promise of of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, that the pure in heart would see God. This is the theme, really, of this entire section, which serves as an outline for the rest of the book. The most amazing revelation here is that God will eternally be present in our midst. In fact, this is so prominent that verses 3 and 4 say that five different ways. Five different ways. It is the principal focus again of verse 7, where the promise is given that the overcomer will be God's Son, and He will be their God. 
in chapter 21, verse 11, we see where it says that the new Jerusalem will have the glory of God shining in all its brilliance. Verse 22 says, And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. In chapter 22, verses 3 and 4, we read, And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and the bondservants shall serve Him, and they shall see His face. The word dwell in chapter 21, verse 3, is a word that means, it's a metaphor for the Shekinah glory of God. The expression, God Himself will be with them, reminds us of the term Emmanuel, God with us, in connection with the first advent of Christ. This will be its ultimate fulfillment. And as Dr. Thomas points out, there is a noticeable change in the Greek from the singular to the plural as it describes the people of God. In the Greek, it really does not read, they shall be his people. It literally reads, and they shall be his peoples, plural. And this is to emphasize that it will not be just Israel, but all the nations of the world who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. God promised that he would make Abraham a blessing to all the people of the world. This will be the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. Well, we're out of time and we need dessert, so we'll end right here. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you again for this picture of heaven. Lord, uh, what a joyful picture it is. And Lord, we want others to be there with us. And so, Lord, help us to be about the work that you've given us to do and to uh, proclaim your gospel to others. But, Lord, what a comfort it is to know that someday, even though this present earth and heaven will be destroyed, there is, a, there is coming a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And we just can't even imagine what that will be like. But someday we will see it with our own eyes because of your grace. So, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.